0: Survivors have always been frustrated by the fact that we've had to really travel through the diagnostic process to get to a diagnosis. That's the problem we're trying to solve. We're trying to get women in to see physicians. We're trying to get the physicians to understand exactly how to go about diagnosing this disease, how
1: it presents. This is Overlooked, and I'm Golda Arthur. For this episode, we're going to break format and hand the mic to women who, like Mom, have survived ovarian cancer. Susan Layton is one of those women, and she talked to me about the idea of survivorship. Susan also works for the Ovarian Cancer Research Alliance, and she runs a program called Survivors Teaching Students.
0: The program is a group of volunteers, about a thousand strong, who take their stories into the classrooms of medical students, nursing students, physician's assistants, and nurse practitioner students to teach them about ovarian cancer, its risk factors and symptoms. You know, it used to be we taught that awareness of symptoms would lead to an earlier diagnosis of ovarian cancer. And we can't really say that anymore with some of the new research that has come out. We can say that for women who are at average risk of developing ovarian cancer, symptoms can drive them to see a physician. So that's the important part of awareness of symptoms. Once they get to the doctor, doctors tend to realize that the symptoms are vague So what we're trying to do is get physicians to understand that they need to keep ovarian cancer on the differential when women present with these vague symptoms, just so that they don't rule it out too early in the process.
1: I mean, it's very interesting when we talk about vague symptoms at the doctor, right? I mean, you know the direction this is going in, Susan. Uh, The question I'm going to ask is, how seriously do doctors take these symptoms? How seriously do doctors take women? And how seriously do women take their own symptoms and bodies? It's a big, awkward discussion point, isn't it?
0: It's a huge discussion point going back to my experience with ovarian cancer, when I was diagnosed, I had bloating. I remember putting on a dress at my daughter's high school graduation and I couldn't get it over my abdomen and I had just worn it a week before. And I thought, oh, the dry cleaners, you know, they shrunk it. This dress definitely fit a week ago, you know. So, I kind of dismissed it, and then when it got progressively worse, I went to the doctor and I said, yeah, you know, maybe I'm gaining a little weight. I've got a little problem around my waistline and so forth and so on, and then he questioned me a little bit about it, and he said, well, you know, you're getting to be that age, and we hear that so many times. You're getting to be that age. I was 48. I didn't consider it that age, but it was that age, and I had some other symptoms, like I had some symptoms of irritable bowel, so I kind of dismissed the symptoms. I tried to justify them. The physician stepped right into that and he tried to justify it. And so I went through about six or eight weeks of treatment for a benign condition before
1: I was led to the diagnosis. What is it in our psyche, Susan, as women, when we do that? Like, why do we do that?
0: We have to be present for so many people in our life. We have to be The caretaker. We have to be the mom. We have to be present all the time that we don't have time for those things. And I think it's just kind of taught to us generationally that you've got to be well. You can't, you know, just dismiss it. It can't be that bad.
1: Okay, so let's go back for a second to the problem that this is seeking to solve, which is the idea of diagnosing symptoms accurately and early. From your perspective, what needs to change in this area from the medical practitioner's point of view, but also from the patient's point of view?
0: The most important thing a patient can do is to become their own advocate. They need to walk into a physician's office and say, these are my symptoms and not dismiss them like we've just talked about, but actually say, this is what's wrong with me today. This is how I'm feeling and not allow the doctor to dismiss them. When a doctor says to you, oh, it's probably just your age, say, no, I don't think it is. I'm actually having this symptom and I'm not that old or it is not related to my age or I'm in good health, whatever. So that's the biggest takeaway for the uh, patients is to actually become their own advocates. It's a huge mindset. Most of us, particularly of my generation and possibly the generation right behind me, our parents raised us to be the doctor knows best. You do what the doctor tells you. And for a lot of people, it's really difficult to get in that room and say, but wait a minute, have you thought about ovarian cancer? My mother never would have asked that question. I will because I'm a little bit, you know, I'm a little outspoken. But most women in that setting will not question a doctor's authority. And I I really wish they would take that away.
1: Susan, would you be comfortable talking about your own story for a little bit as well? (laughs) Sure. So tell me about your diagnosis and how you found out. In...
0: 1997, so it's been almost 27 years, I was having some symptoms, like I said, very vague, intestinal upset, bloating, went to my doctor, was treated for irritable bowel syndrome, was given a heartburn medication and told, go home, wait six weeks, come back. If it's not any better, come back sooner. I was back in his office in five days. I said, this is just, nothing is working. And he said, well, it's your gallbladder. You know, your mother had gallbladder disease. Your grandmother had gallbladder disease. Let's just get you a CT scan and see, or an ultrasound and see what's going on. So they sent me over for an ultrasound. It was a Friday afternoon, and while they were doing the ultrasound, the technician got this worried look on his face, you know, that blank look they're supposed to keep, it wasn't there. And he quickly turned the screen off and ran out of the room, came back in with the radiologist, and the radiologist said to me, you have to have a CT scan. I said, "Okay, it's Friday afternoon, 5 o'clock, I'll see you on Monday. And he said, no, no, you don't understand, you have to have it now. And I said, well, what did you say? Oh, nothing. Well, you know, oh, nothing, that's not true. (laughs) So I had the CT scan, and I knew I was in trouble when my family practice doctor walked into the radiology suite. They don't show up on a Friday afternoon for anything, you know. And he said, they found something on your ovaries. I hadn't even thought about my ovaries in years, you know. I had had his partial hysterectomy years before. So long story short, they told me that I probably had ovarian cancer. I had two masses, went to a GYN who said, you definitely have ovarian cancer, which you couldn't tell without a biopsy. But he said, and women die of that disease, which scared the living daylights out of me and is another reason I do this program because I think it's so important that doctors realize there are ways to tell women things like that. I was referred very fortunately to a gynecologic oncologist at University of Alabama in Birmingham. That is the doctor everybody wants to see. You need to see a gynecologic oncologist, and that's one of the things we teach in Survivors Teaching Students because it is so critical to a woman's outcome. He saw me. Two days later, I had surgery. I was diagnosed with stage 3C endometrioid ovarian cancer. I went through six cycles of chemotherapy. And after that, had what they called a second look surgery, which back then was standard of practice. They showed no evidence of disease, and I went on my merry way thinking everything was all right. About a year later, my CA-125 started going up, which is a tumor marker for ovarian cancer. It started going up and they did a CT scan and found a small tumor in my pelvis. We tried a clinical trial of a new drug and the drug failed. So he said, well, you're young enough, we'll take it out and I had surgery to have that tumor removed, and it was benign. He said, I think your CA-125 was going up because you had some irritation from scar tissue and that benign tumor. Well, that was not the cause because my CA-125 kept going up. And they'd do another scan and they couldn't find anything else. And it'd go up a little bit more, nothing on scan. So finally, he said to me, you have a choice. You can either have chemotherapy to treat the number, which was increasing every month, or we can wait and watch. And I was feeling great. I said, okay, let's wait and watch. And so every three months I would see him, we'd do a CA-125 and we'd have a bet on how high that number was gonna go. And we'd have a CT scan and nothing showed up. He said, when you have symptoms, let me know. I waited eight years and I finally developed shortness of breath went in to see him and he said, well, we had this new thing called a PET scan. They did the PET scan and discovered a massive tumor in my chest. It was sitting on my lung and compressing my heart. And referred me to a cardiothoracic surgeon. They took the tumor out. It was indeed ovarian cancer that had metastasized to my chest. They took it out. Six weeks after surgery, my CA-125 went back down to seven, and it has been there ever since. So I'm one of the lucky ones. I have survived this beast for almost 26 years this year, and I have not had any additional symptoms from it. I've since had breast cancer, which was really a walk in the park compared to the ovarian cancer. But I will be 74 years old in a few days, and I feel great.
1: (laughs) Well, you look great and you sound great. So well done, you. And thank you for sharing your story. I want to ask you about something you said. When the doctor told you that you had ovarian cancer and he said, women die from this disease, if you're comfortable sharing this, Put yourself back in that moment when he said that to you and tell me what was going through your mind and your heart. I panicked.
0: I'm a very rational person. I come from a background of science. I always thought I could accept things and and figure out a battle plan. And in that moment, I was terrified. My daughter was leaving for college that August, and this was in July. And all I kept thinking was, I'm not going to see her graduate from college. I'm not going to see her get married. I'm not going to hold grandbabies. And it took me seeing my family physician and talking it through with him, and then seeing a GYN oncologist who said, you know, this is not a death sentence. And he had no right to say that to you. We don't know where this is going to go. And I asked my GYN oncologist, what are my chances? And he said, I'm going to tell you right now, I'm not giving you statistics because you are a statistic of one. So all these statistics don't apply to you. That calmed me down. That brought me back to I'm going to fight this away. way I know how to fight it. I've got a good medical team in place, so I could leave all that fear behind. But that first week, I was a basket case, I'll be honest with you, because I just thought of all I was going to miss and all my family was going to miss.
1: And then my last question for you is, you know, you've been doing this work for a long time and you have a great deal of experience, both subjectively and objectively. What got you into this work? Like, how did you come to be involved um, in this program?
0: When I finished my initial chemotherapy, I kept going to my GYN oncologist with questions. You know, I'd find a research paper and I'd take it to him and I'd say, well, what about this? Should we be looking into this? I was driving him crazy. I know I was. And he suggested to me, he said, you need to get involved in something outside of yourself, something that's involved with the whole community. So I did. And that's where I got started. I started with this program. I became a research advocate. Uh, I do a lot of scientific reviews. I also do legislative advocacy. So I do a lot of different things because I just feel like I need to pay my survivorship forward.
1: To pay your survivorship forward. That's, That's interesting. Can you say more about what that means?
0: That means I've been fortunate enough to live through this. And when I was diagnosed, I did not have a network of survivors around me. There just weren't that many that I could find. They don't They don't stand out in the street. When I was diagnosed with breast cancer, Everybody wanted to give me advice because it's more common, but you don't find ovarian cancer that often. I happen to live in North Alabama, and in the entire state of Alabama, there might be 300 cases of ovarian cancer during the year. So I'm not going to walk out the front door and meet another ovarian cancer survivor. So paying my survivorship forward means supporting other women giving them an outlet for their stories, giving them a way to share it, and raising awareness for all women. So that's why I got involved.
1: Paying your survivorship forward. This is an idea that's also meaningful for Donna Pepin. Donna is an advocate for Ovarian Cancer Canada and shared her story with me.
2: I was diagnosed initially with ovarian cancer, Actually in 2006. That's such a long time ago now, especially in cancer terms. I like to think of it almost as the olden days of cancer in the days before personalized medicine or was just beginning. And at a time when all ovarian cancers were treated in the same way, things have definitely changed today. So I was treated throughout the year of 2007 with multiple rounds of chemotherapy, including a clinical trial, and my treatment culminated in a very successful surgery at the end of 2007, and I actually remained healthy and disease-free for nine years after that. In 2016, I was diagnosed with a recurrence of my disease, recurrent metastatic ovarian cancer. Uh, Needless to say, I was shocked because, you know, 10 years after my initial diagnosis, I really thought that I had left ovarian cancer behind me and believed that I would never have to deal with it again in my lifetime.
1: Can you talk to me about, can you tell me what was going through your head the first time when you heard your diagnosis? Uh, (laughs) I think uh,
2: ignorance is truly bliss. It was very terrifying, of course. Hearing the fact that I had ovarian cancer the first time around, it was also, I think, a little extra terrifying because my disease was considered to be very advanced uh, when I was diagnosed initially with stage 3C borderline serous tumors. And in 2007, actually, I was given a 10 to 15 percent chance of survival. But I I was always hopeful and I always thought if I have a chance, you know, I have a chance to survive and obviously I have. When I was diagnosed with recurrent metastatic ovarian cancer, the fear was very different and the stress was very different because I had some sense of what lay before me. So it was a very different scenario, but unfortunately... um, you know, I have a very rare disease on the landscape of of cancer and ovarian cancer. I'm, my disease only affects less than 5% of all ovarian cancer patients. And having a rare disease definitely has me at a disadvantage because my treatment choices are minimal. My best chance for survival at my recurrent stage was for a surgery. I thought to myself, you know what, I've done this before, I can definitely do it again. And I definitely had that mindset. But unfortunately, my disease, as it turned out, was inoperable. I certainly never expected that. Like I've been living with my tumors in my body uh, since then. And I'm still here.
1: <laughs> what keeps you going, Donna? I think what,
2: what helps me mentally today and sustains me really and has sustained me through all these years and certainly from the very beginning is, I think, I know it sounds trite, but I've always chosen my attitude and I choose hope. You know, when I was um, newly diagnosed, I, I of course, I was in an absolute state of terror and and consumed with fear of the unknown. But I had a lot of support around me. I have, you know, a loving family, partner, etc. and and a lot of people that have helped me to maintain my belief that I I have a chance to survive. I believe in my medical team. I believe in in science and scientific process and progress. I believe that even if I only have one chance out of a hundred, I still have a chance. I am focused on living. I am not Focused on ovarian cancer. I'm focused on living my life. And I believe that my work in advocacy also gives me something else to focus on. When you're a cancer patient, sometimes it can feel as if cancer is in control. But I choose to empower myself by taking control with my advocacy work, by moving forward, by focusing on living, living as healthily as I can in terms of nutrition and fitness and and doing my best to have a balance in my life. And I believe, I believe in the future and that things will change and that greatness in terms of a breakthrough in the treatment of ovarian cancer, I I do believe it's on the horizon and I'm fully aware of the dedication of the scientists in Canada and around the world who are working for us. You know, with the new funding that has come through from the federal government, things are changing, things are happening.
1: Tell me more about the funding. Well, I was
2: uh, part of a team of advocates alongside Ovarian Cancer Canada and the scientific community that advocated our federal government. Over a period of four years, it was a long haul. It was not a sprint. In fact, it was a marathon. I was part of a team of delegates that went to Parliament Hill. I was there in 2017 and also 2018. And in 2019, the $10 million we had asked for for an investment in ovarian cancer research was granted Over five years, a five year grant from the federal government of Canada for the Ovarian Cancer Canada Research Initiative. Uh, We were seeking funding for research in ovarian cancer, and our message was the same from the beginning of the four year period and until the end. And that was the reality of ovarian cancer, meaning that outcomes and improvements in survival rates and progression-free times had not changed in 50 years, that the status quo wasn't good enough, that Canadian women deserved better. And I know that for myself, in the last and final year that I went to Parliament Hill, I actually begged. I begged on behalf of my community. I begged on behalf of All the women that we've lost to this disease and their families. So I'm sorry, it's very emotional for me. But I said, you know, please help us. (laughs) Help us to save lives. Help us to end the suffering. Help us to move research forward. And the only way that these grim statistics and these terrible numbers are going to change is through scientific progress. We need funding. And they finally granted us the money. So amazing.
1: Donna, tell me about the first time you went to Ottawa, and that would have been back in 2017. Tell me a little bit about that trip, that journey. Take me back to that moment. Uh, Yes, of course. The first time that
2: I went to Parliament Hill in 2017, I was, you know, I'd never been to Ottawa before. I was definitely honoured to be the voice of ovarian cancer patients in Canada alongside executives from Ovarian Cancer Canada, as well as research physicians and clinicians who accompanied us as well. And we were essentially teams of three that were scheduled to meet one on one with members of parliament in their offices. And so I remember the, the excitement and the feeling that, that I had, you know, even physically walking up the hill and looking at the parliament buildings and going through security and walking through those hallowed halls and really experiencing and feeling that sense of history that was there. And when we met with uh, our delegates, our teams of three, when we actually sat down and met with members of parliament, you know, we had an amazing reception. I felt that people really listened and the members of parliament you know, really cared and and seemed to sincerely care and want to help us. And certainly the Women's Caucus was supportive to our cause as well. And after our day on the Hill, I know that we all walked away feeling elated and, and feeling positive and hopeful that we would finally have our funding. But when the next budget came down. Unfortunately, we didn't get it that year. And I think also, to be fair, I can't even imagine what it's like to be a member of Parliament. You know, there are people in front of you all day long. (laughs) Everyone has their hands out. And when I returned and I was asked to accompany over in Cancer Canada again the following year, when we were invited back, I had a very different perspective uh, going to Ottawa that year. I was certainly no longer starstruck And in fact, I was armed with a little anger because that year I knew far too many women that were suffering and dying of our disease. I'd lost some friends and people that were very close to me and I was angry and I remember... Actually, it was very random at the time, but being connected on the phone with a woman in Vancouver when i was had landed in in Ottawa, and I was going from the airport and driving into the city and speaking on the phone with a woman in Vancouver who was facing her seventh surgery for ovarian cancer and and had been just suffering for years. And that woman inspired me. I said, you know, I'm going to tell your story tomorrow. And I'm taking you with me to Parliament Hill. And uh, unfortunately, that woman passed away, and I believe it was a year or so later. But that was really, you know, my feeling when when I sat in front of the members of Parliament, different people this time around. And I told this person's story. The woman's name was Maureen. And I said, you know, can you help her? Because she might be running out of time. And could you help me? Because I'm facing no new solutions with my disease, and I might be running out of time as well you know, I don't think it was just what I said, of course. I mean, there were executives from Ovarian Cancer Canada who were also were speaking about the realities and the statistics and and what was happening on a national level, not just me speaking personally, and also scientists and research physicians who could actually explain the work that they needed to do in a laboratory and what their plans were for the funding. So, I mean, you know, in 2019, I'll never forget as long as I live, the feeling we all had when we finally got the funding. It was incredible. Our lives would be changed.
1: I, I want to follow up on something you said. You, you said you went there armed with a little bit of anger. Can you describe that anger for me a little bit more? The outrage,
2: really, that if I think about, you know, as I said, I knew so many women in our community and across Canada that were suffering, and the fact that outcomes and progress and improvements in treatment had not been made in more than 50 years. If we compared the survival rates, for example, with causes like breast cancer, I'm not an expert in the realm of breast cancer, certainly, but I believe that there are a myriad of treatment options. There's only one reason why that has happened, and that has been that research has been funded and that scientific progress has been made. So to sit in front of a member of parliament, I felt angry, and I was saying, you know what, the status quo, it's not good enough we deserve better. Improvements have to be made. You must help us. This is just not acceptable on any level. There's only one way that these statistics will
1: change, and that is to fund research. We've got to move this forward. Donna, when the question is asked, why haven't outcomes changed in 50 years? Why hasn't the needle moved? What's the answer that you found that was obviously unsatisfactory? I think one of the biggest problems our disease has had is awareness
2: because it is a rare disease. Quite frankly, there aren't a lot of survivors and advocates like me around because most women don't live uh, past four or five years with this disease. So the fact that I'm still here, you know, 17 years after my initial diagnosis is, in my mind, nothing short of a miracle, Thank God for organizations like Ovarian Cancer Canada, who has, have given people like me a platform to speak out. But my advocacy work really is a gift for me. It allows me, it gives me a focus and, and a purpose, and I'm honored to do it. And I will speak about my disease as long as I'm here
1: and able to. We have a long way to go. Overlooked is written and produced by me, Golda Arthur. Our associate producer is Jessica Martinez-Dios. Lisa Sowep is our editor, and Eric Gomez is our sound designer and engineer. Please share this episode with someone who would like to listen as well. Subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, or wherever you're listening to this. And for more information about the show, check out our website, www.overlookedpod.com. Thank you for listening.